So, uh, Simon, thanks very much for doing um, the event with Abano. Um, obviously, we first uh, I contacted you some while ago, and um, I believe this might be one of your earliest events as the new RIBA president. Uh, today, I want to look at um, really what Abano stands for in terms of really being a catalyst to connections. And I know in your uh, presentation, you talked about that, but I want to look at that a bit more in depth in terms of your own career and that of AHMM and its growth and development. I want to quickly take you back to your, uh, you you formed, I believe, AHMM with your um, colleagues and now um, business partners uh, at the Bartlett. Um, can you remember where friendship and connections turned into a business idea and then setting in place the um, the idea for your practice that has now grown to become a global um, presence across architecture? Yeah, I think these things, as you said, connections are vital. And we were in a kind of pretty fertile ground, which was the Bartlett School of Architecture. And it was actually set up by a challenge. There was a brief uh, to design an urban supermarket, which we rejected because we thought it was uh, not the challenge of the day. So he said, we're not going to do your brief for the year. We're going to do our own project, which will be um, the buildings will be, a, will be about a site and how they're occupied will be a product of the moment in time. And the moment in time was the big bang, which was financial deregulation. But what we stressed was the four buildings we we're going to make, which would come together around a public space, would be vehicles for the big bang, but vehicles for a future that we, you know, that would come and change and evolve. And that their key role was to be urban uh, receptacles for future change. So in a way, it very much set up our long-term interest in the everyday buildings of the city becoming really important, um, as I said, vehicles for the future. Long life, loose fit, low energy, that mantra. And then that became a project, which we called the fifth man, because there were four of us. And the idea was that we could work individually and come together collectively with the individual performing to the best of their ability, not compromised by collaboration, but enriched. That then became an idea that actually, would it not be fun to take yourself out into the job market and say to the job market, and it was a good time, we are four, you employ all four of us or none of us which we did, and we took to a number of practices. We got quite a number of offers. Um, we decided to work with a gentleman called Bill Jack at Building Design Partnership because he was very excited by the idea of engaging with a, you know, a kind of, let's call it a disruptor in his uh, organisation. Um, and we did that for three years, and, it was, and we learned a lot. We split up at times and got different experiences. And in the evenings, we used to do competitions. And we won a number of competitions. And then I think we were probably 27. We've been working for three years. We won a number of competitions. And we thought, well, actually, if we don't go now, we'll all get trapped into careers and, and, and salaries and mortgages and all those things that hold you back whilst making your life quite pleasant. Um, so in 1989, we said, come on, let's open an office. Um, it was probably the worst possible time because it was a recession. Or recession loomed very quickly after a boom. It was classic boom and bust. But actually, we, we opened in the bust and we stayed in the bust for about three or four years. But that was incredibly useful because we, you know, with hindsight, it meant we had to work really hard together 
to get through it, to learn ways of working, to create our own networks, to learn from other young practices, to learn from older practices, to speak to our peers. Um, and then, you know, it's probably the mid 90s when we started going again, when we won a competition for a bus station. Before it was literally, we used to joke about gambling, um, putting money on the horses was probably more likely to make us money than architecture. So, you know, it was a great moment for collaborating, uh, creating a network. And that network of people we, we started to work with, you know, peers and other consultants, it still underpins a lot of what we do now when we're a firm of 500, which we certainly never thought we'd be. And was there any difficult conversations around who did what within AHMM or was it all pretty smooth? Can you remember any uh, diff- back to that? Difficult, difficult conversations, almost physical um, uh, <laughs> engagement. Uh, I think that we always thought that was actually quite healthy. Get your problems out rather than let them fester where you suddenly blow up. And, you know, for the four of us to remain colleagues and friends after 40 years of collaborating is quite something. But I think the reason we managed it is we've always said the individual must be able to pursue their own interests in the, you know, their own interest in design within the collective of the four. And obviously now that four is an employee ownership trust. It's 500 people. And we are part of the leadership, but we are not you know, we are not it alone. It's, it's a much bigger collaboration. But I think it's always been that you've got to gravitate to where you want to go and your partners are there to support you, but you share everything equally. Every penny you earned, even if you were doing a, you know, a, a day's teaching, everything went into the central pot. So everything was being done for the collective good, which is why the model to an EOT to us was very much a natural step because it's all about creating a, a practice with a vision and with a, a belief in solving the, 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 you know, architecture, helping to solve uh, the design of the built environment, um, and with particular, you know, interests about how you make and how, how pragmatism can generate poetry. These all underpin our thinking, which is why we're able to do anything from a house to a school, to an office, to a bus station, to an art gallery, and how we're able to work in cities around the world. It's the same thinking rippling through. And can, you know, it sounds to me that the collective is a way of keeping four individuals together so they've got the space to sort of breathe and be creative, but also contribute to the, the company itself. Can you think of any instances where you've met and that meeting has led to, you know, a key development within AHMM. I'm, I'm thinking of potential clients who were prospects at the time. You might have met them and chatted, and they've been key to where you are now. Yeah, probably. I mean, look, we, we, we started off in Charlotte Street in 1989 paying £30 a foot. We moved, we jumped out of that lease um, and moved to Alfred Place paying £15 a foot. Then we jumped out of that lease and moved to Old Street, paying £1.50 a foot. So as our as our situation worsened, we moved further east to ever cheaper space. And then the building we were in was bought by uh, Derwent London, who are you know, one of London's now most famous real estate investment trusts, famous for the quality of what they do and the fact that they hold their investments. They... Uh, through a guy called David Rosen, that he, he was an agent. He introduced me to Simon Silver, who was like the creative director of that property company. And 
that you know, we, we filled our office with students and said we were 12 when we were four. And you know, they said, okay, you could do, why don't you do this project for us? And we did a one and a half million pound project. Now that was probably 25 years ago. We are still in that building. But instead of having a 2,000 foot office at the first floor, we have 25,000 foot. We've extended the building. We've connected up. We've grown. We now have taken a building uh, around the corner that we designed for them for the white corner factory. We've probably built a dozen major projects together. So we've grown up together. Um, they were already, already, I don't always have been more established and a more successful institution than us, but we, we've grown together to become very closely intertwined. It's been a, a wonderful journey. And can I think about the um, the way you've developed and worked with um, these kind of companies? We're, we're often talked about um, around um, the pathway to net zero carbon as collaboration being a key. Now, it sounds like it's a very collaborative affair between you and Derwent, but I'm also aware running Urbano as I do and have done for a while, that we're in a competitive marketplace. You spoke at the start about competitions, that architects are used to winning new business through competition, and yet we're asked to focus on the collaboration as being one of the keys to delivering on net zero carbon promises. Um, can you maybe think about and, and talk about how you think we can we can adapt that new methodology to um, create the reduction in net zero carbon yet within a competitive market space that architects exist in? Yeah, um, I think that you know, architects architects need. There's a lot of discussion about competitions. I think they're a force for good. They open the door to new talent. If you don't want to do them, you can choose not to do them. They've been absolutely vital to the building up of our practice and many other practices. And the next generation are emerging through competitions. As you get more successful, you enter less of them and they are more, they are better managed. They are not open. They are uh, short lists. They are often paid. Um, so you, know, you get into a better place. But when you're young, it is a way of opening the door to bigger opportunities to move from house extensions to, to larger public buildings. And long may it be thus. I think that's how new talent emerges. But even in that competitive spirit, I will lose a competition as, you know, at least as often as I will win it. And I will lose it. And if I lose it to someone I know and respect, I'm quite happy with that. It's, you know, and, and I will exchange notes with that architect about what they did and what we did. And throughout my career, architects, engineers, everyone's been happy to share intelligence because I think there's a view that if you're sharing intelligence, you are part of a network that's improving its capability. And I think that sharing of intelligence is really important. So it's competition without being dog-eat-dog. -dog. And moving forward, you know, addressing particularly the carbon challenge, we need, to be, we need to expand that ability to share intelligence. That's one of the visions for the RIBA moving forward, is it will not lead the low-carbon agenda. That will be led by practices of consultants and uh, constructors and clients um, with architects in that mix. And they'll be led by those practices, but the RIBA could be a place where you're capturing best practice and you're sharing it back, you're celebrating it. You might also capture and share data. If we're all doing it on our own, that's an incredible, uh, massive repetition of the same research. We've got to sort of almost 
whatever we're doing with cement free concrete with one contractor, we're happy to publish and share so that others can can build up. That is the way we will get there because everyone is sharing knowledge and data. You're not afeard of your competitors. You're recognizing that they've done this. You've got to do something better. And you create competition as a way of um, helping all of us climb up this, you know, this, this mountain that we face. And is that part of your vision for RIBA under your presidency that it becomes a place, a physical place, but also a space uh, online and elsewhere where architects can exchange information, exchange uh, ideas around net zero carbon and uh, materials and, and design, a place to collaborate. Most definitely. I've talked about it being an open and generous host, you know, a house, you know, an institute of ideas. And I think um, the, the recent best uh, summit that we're holding that will be pre-COP26, we made a global call to anyone who was doing good work in that field, you know, clients, constructors, consultants. We had a review panel that was a group of international experts, it was, and it was Architects Declare and the RIBA. So, so not a closed club, but an open society calling in best ideas to capture and share. Otherwise, you're trapped in your narrow confines. It shouldn't be that. It should be almost the strength of the RIBA is how it is open to, to the diversity of uh, talent and ideas out there, which then, of course, goes into opening up our membership to a much uh, broader group of people and therefore becoming the centre of the debate and gaining confidence from that rather than being afeard of competition. You say, look, you know, if it's we're interested in who is doing good work, you know, rather than, oh, we're within the Institute. And does that mean when you're talking about opening up the membership, so non-architects can join RIBA? Yes, we've talked about this, that you should have friends of the RIBA. You should say, you know, I've had this discussion, I was at Open the Liverpool Festival of Architecture the other night. Architecture is a great degree. If there's more and more people doing it, that's nothing to worry about. They don't need to all be architects. They might become clients. They might work in construction. They might go off and become product designers. You know, they might be involved in all kinds of initiatives. So, you know, it, we, it, we can't be a protectionist place. We must be a place where talent is emerging and, and diversifying into different fields. And then you suddenly discover that some of the, you know, the, the most important people to allow you to make good buildings are working in other spaces that engage with, with, with architecture. Yes, and I always it's interesting for me to observe architects when hosting networking events. I always feel quite sorry for them because they're seen as the sort of in, in their backpacks, they've got all these potential contracts and they're looking just for um, you know, they're looking for their own connections, but others see them as these potential pathways to um become suppliers. Um in in terms of architecture going forward, um, and maybe the space for networking within that, and like you've spoken about collaboration and connections, what would you say to a group of architects, maybe at the start of their careers, about um, how they should approach networking conversations and engagement generally? Um, but I think yeah, there is there are numerous people doing things that are connecting people. Get stay out of your silo and recognize it's not about, I'm not very keen on talking about a business networking opportunity. I see it much more as an ongoing proper uh, education. 
it's slightly strange we educate everyone at the beginning and then they're finished and education's finished apart from a bit of topping up with CPD. What you should really be saying is you are on a journey for the rest of your life. You've got to actually continuously be learning and, and, and acquiring knowledge and, and then feeding that back into your work. And the best way of doing that is to see the world as other people see it. Talk to an engineer, understand your client, talk to the local community, talk to people who make. All of that makes you an ever more skilled architect, but also opens up a group of people who become friends, colleagues, peers, advisors, critics, who you can draw down upon and who will support you in a project you might be inventing or in, you know, or in a situation where a client does wish to commission you, you suddenly can bring a group of people together to make your ability to address the challenges of that client much more comprehensive because you're seeing the world from many angles and you're bringing a group of experts in around you because architects are, by their very nature, generalists. And my last question will be... Um... Now you're you're Simon Olford. You know you're you're um, one of the chiefs at um, AHMM. You're global renown. You're now the president of the RIBA. Can I ask when was the last or the last personal conversation you had that maybe jolted your thinking, made you think of a new way of approaching a project or um, something along the business? I come out of the design review this morning with a, with, with a team who are looking at uh, one retrofit uh, and one new build. And we've been doing the carbon analysis on each. I am challenged every day. And that's how I like it. You know, I want to be challenged. I, I, and I want people to, to, to make sure we are always looking at the next uh, step in the journey and how we can be clever, how we can eradicate the uh, unnecessary, but really focus on, on, on the vitally important whilst making delightful buildings. That is why, as president of the RIBA, I'm still very busy in the office because I think it's, you know, architecture at its best is a wonderfully stimulating, engaging um, project. And the danger of stepping into a role like the presidency is you forget the whole purpose of it, which is actually to support practice. Well, thanks for taking the time for um, joining us. Thanks for accepting the invitation to um, speak at Urbano event. And uh, we, I know, wish you all the best with your tenure at the RIBA. My pleasure. And congratulations. Thank you for the opportunity. Congratulations on all you've been doing to get people to open their minds and connect with each other. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers, Simon.